Today on The Black Goat, do all your idols have clay feet? We talk about dealing with role models who have flaws. And a letter about seeking counseling as a psychology graduate student. Hi, everybody. Uh, welcome to The Black Goat. My name is Sanjay Srivastava, and uh, I'm here with Alexa and Samin. Hi, guys. How you doing? Hey, hey Sanjay. Uh, so <laughs> school is starting for, for one-third of The Black Goat team, right, mm-hmm. Alexa? You're, yeah, that's uh, Yeah. Mm-hmm. We're, <laughs> you're, you're getting we're into a the week and a half in now, I guess. Although by the time this yeah. airs, Sanjay, you and I are going to have to be facing school pretty soon. That's true. When when is this one coming out? I, I don't even September remember. September 20th it's going to come out, but right now it's September okay. 1st when we're recording. That's going to be yeah, right. that's going to be on the cusp. Mm-hmm. Uh yeah, we start like super late this year. Um Do you guys which, get stressed uh, out about the start of the semester? Yeah. I mean, I don't like it. <laughs> is that the same getting stressed out? <laughs> <laughs> I think that's different. Yeah. Why why don't you like it, Sabine? Uh, like summer, I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> I I feel like I'm I'm kind of I mean it depends what I'm teaching in the fall, but I I feel like often I'm kind of ready. Like that's how I feel. It's sort of campus is like a little too quiet and a little too boring, mm. and that kind of energy of like all the students being back is kind of cool. Once once mm-hmm. I'm into it, I like it. But I'm yeah, I would be perfectly happy if it didn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> I have like a a week of dread before it happens and then it starts and I'm like, Oh yeah, this feels right. good. I, I feel think like it's the same. Yeah. Uh, a better human being now that I yeah. have mm-hmm. structure and feel productive and stuff. Yeah. But yeah, I, I never want it to happen until it does. Yeah. Yeah. One, one of my colleagues refers to this as deep summer, quote unquote, mm-hmm. where it's just like, you've kind of, you know, for, for us at least, cause we're on the quarter system, right? Like it's, it's, you're kind of so far distant from the, the, the last term and you're just kind of, you know, and this is when the most people are taking their vacations and all that stuff. And it's just kind of like, everything's sort of, you know, it's like the deepest part of your sleep or something. Yeah. And then pretty soon we start to wake up. Yeah. yeah but, I think the fact that semester yeah. schools start up a month before us helps because then I'm like, okay, this is like bonus time. And mm-hmm. I, right. like, it gets me more mentally ready. I used yeah. to like, before classes would start, I used to have recurring nightmares about missing my first classes, which <laughs> lately has become, I think very, very warranted because there've been a couple times when I have been like wrong about what my classes are. <laughs> and all I, I take varying degrees of responsibility for these situations. See, when personal um, psychologists who are listening, if you wonder if there are any downsides to low neuroticism. <laughs> <laughs> but I so mean, Alexa, it, it doesn't phase me, you know. <laughs> Alexa, you're you're teaching a class about teaching this term, right? Yeah. So you're you're, you're meta teaching. We we're we're usually about meta science here, but now we're we're you know, you're doing the meta teaching, right? I'm doing meta teaching for the first time, which feels a little bit ironic given that I have no training in teaching um and do things like almost miss my first classes sometimes. <laughs> um but it's been really really fun and interesting so far. So we've only had a couple of classes. Um, but there are six grad students in my class and they're all teaching for the first time. Um, and so they're all like telling me about their first classes and stuff like that. And did you um, tell them that if they fuck up, you're going to talk about it on the black goat? 
<laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> that's, that's part of the incentive, right? By, by name. Yeah. <laughs> I told them that if they fuck up, I'm going to record their class and then air it on the black goat. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <geez. laughs> Um, but one thing we were talking about in class the other day was whether or not they were going to admit that they're first time teachers. Um, and it seems like the most common advice is that you shouldn't admit something like that because it sort of like undermines your expertise or something and it will make students doubt your abilities as a teacher. Um, and that doesn't sound like terrible advice to me, but I definitely did admit when I was, a a first-time teacher. And I can point to things that happened as a consequence of that that were not ideal. Um, but yeah, I'm curious whether you guys admitted that and whether you think it's a good idea to admit that you're a first-time teacher. I don't remember if I did, but I think I probably did because there were a lot of things I did that, that, that first time I taught that I, that would have made it super obvious anyway. Um <laughs> yeah, like I think I I wrote this recently on a comment on Facebook, but my very first class that I, I taught, I was standing in front of the students and they were all staring at me and they were looking at me really funny. And so I paused the class like two minutes in to go to the bathroom and make sure my fly wasn't open because I was like, why are they staring at me? Oh wow! <laughs> it took me a really long time to figure out that that's just how people look at teachers or speakers or whatever. Like, that's hilarious. That is so <laughs> hilarious. Oh, wow. Yeah, I don't I don't remember. I'm pretty sure I must have either said it or it was obvious. So I, I taught the first time I taught was in graduate school and we didn't uh um we didn't normally have Berkeley didn't normally have graduate students teach classes. I know some universities they do, some they don't. So this was kind of like a um but there was this thing where if you were a graduate student you could teach an intro to psych class for non majors. And it was like a specific program set up and it was supposed to be supervised and whatever. And so it was kind of like an exception and a weird thing that a graduate student was even teaching a class. And so I think the students probably, if I didn't say something, they probably knew anyway. Um, yeah. I did. The first time I taught at Davis, I said that it was my first time teaching at Davis because I wanted them to know, like, I don't really know how they're like course management system works and other things like that and I remember like towards the end of the quarter a student saw me in the hallway and came up to me and they were like Dr. Vizier I just wanted to tell you like you're doing a great job like (laughs) it's your first time teaching and I just didn't correct them (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah I mean what Alexa do your your student teachers do they like do they get pushback from students if they do let on that they're teaching for the first time or I don't maybe know. it's too early to tell for them we might not find out because i think most of them are sort of resolved to not do it although they may end up in a situation where it becomes clear i don't know we'll find out um but i when i did that i had i got an the most obvious memory is i got an email from a parent that was like you obviously mm-hmm. don't know what you're doing you're a first-time mm-hmm. teacher because their student did really poorly in my class um and I guess maybe they would have maybe felt less licensed to do that if they hadn't known that it was my first time teaching. But they still um, would have known or guessed that you were young and maybe you know that it was yeah. like your, what, your first year at Alabama or something. I don't know. I feel yeah. like, yeah, there's so many other... If you can hide it, maybe then don't say it. But if it's going to probably be pretty obvious anyway, then I think there's some value to saying it. I don't yeah. know. I also think you have to do what feels right for you. Like for me, you know, everyone told me as like a young female blah 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 don't let them call you by your first name but I've always had my students call me by my first name yeah that works for me but I could imagine that it doesn't work for other people I I feel the same way and I think 
on, there are a lot of examples of things like that where people sort of like advise you to, um, I guess be more formal rather than less formal, especially for, I think, young women teachers. Um, so I think I got a lot of advice that was sort of like error on the side of like acting like, you know, your shit and you know what you're doing. Um, and I didn't really do that and I never really do that. And maybe there are some consequences to that, but in general, I think that like I admire other people more when they are willing to sort of admit uncertainty about things. And, um, yeah, so, I think it I depends know. if you're going to be able to to stand up to students. So I remember my very first yeah. time teaching, I was also a grad student. And towards the end of the semester, a student came to me and like asked for some special treatment. And mm-hmm. I remember like saying no, but she was like super pushy. And like, and then I was like, well, let me think about it and get back to you, which is really what you should say, I think, in that situation where you start feeling like anxious and you can't think on your feet. But she really wanted, she like, kept pushing and so on. And so that was a good lesson for me to be like, okay, like, I need to make sure, you know, as informal as I am or whatever else, like I have to have like really clear boundaries. And anytime someone tries to push them, like a good thing to fall back on is always like, I will get back to you. Like if you Mm -hmm. can't figure out how to get out of the situation on the spot. Yeah. 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 I, I feel like I, I tend to be pretty sort of personal and disclosing relatively not hopefully not oversharing but you know in in the classroom and in in some ways that's like I realize that's kind of I'm able to do that because I'm a man and I'm older uh not that old but you know um and you know I'm six feet tall and so I'm sort of physically like you know I'm not imposing, but I'm, you know, uh, anyway, uh, but so in some ways, like the, the, I have a beard, you know, it gets grayer every year, (laughs) you know, um, in in some ways that's like a a privilege that I can do that. In other ways, I feel like I'm sort of compensating by playing against type because I think if I was very just sort of straight and formal, I could easily come across as standoffish. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I, I, I think the, the sort of like, figuring out what works for you because there are other people who sort of have similar kind of status markers that I do who are very sort of structured and formal. And I think that that can work very well too. One of the things that I I remember from the first time I taught as a professor, I was teaching intro to psych and I had TAs uh, doing lab sections and the, the women TAs got a lot of pushback from students, especially dudes uh, who didn't want to accept their authority. And that, that's something mm-hmm. that's always kind of struck with me, stuck, stuck with me. And I remember the, the, there was this one incident, <laughs> which is just, it was like in, almost enraging there. Was, so, um, the students did, uh, they had to do group presentations that, which turns out in, in retrospect, this was like ambitious Sanjay, like first time mm-hmm. teaching. This was like a, bad assignment because it was too much for the Mm -hmm. students but anyway it was like i I thought oh you're in in an intro psych class you should see what a journal article looks like so i had them do group projects where they read a journal article (laughs) like they pick one from several that we had picked out um and then do a presentation to the class on it and uh um, one of the articles was on stereotype threat and this uh there was one of the groups in one of the sections where basically like four of the five group members just flaked out and the one person who actually did it um showed up and like had everybody else read his slides that he had created but his summary was like this claude Steele article was about how um 
black people feel nervous in college because they don't want everyone to find out how stupid they are. Oh, like boy. it was it was appalling how this person misread this article. And so the the TA was like, I don't want all the students yeah. and all the rest of the class coming out of this class thinking this is what this psychology research says. And so she like was kind of like, you know, that's not really what the article says and was kind of like trying to counter it. And he, you know, so afterwards, like he sent me this long email about how, you know, he had given this brilliant presentation and this TA had like completely undermined it because she didn't know what she was talking about and whatever. Mm -hmm. And then she'd been really unfair with the grade. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. and it was just like, come the fuck on, you mm -hmm. asshole. And so uh, I don't usually call my students assholes even in my head but this was a time I felt it was very mm -hmm. warranted and so I, I was like email me your presentation slides let me take a look mm -hmm. and then I, I was like you know emailed him back and was like I looked at your slides and talked to Jessica and what she said was exactly right you totally fucked this up <laughs> um take your f and go away um mm -hmm. or d or whatever it was anyway um yeah but this this was like a recurring thing with with uh the female graduate students, um, they would they would have students who would just like not accept that they were authorities in the classroom because they they sort of knew they were like students. And so since then, like I mean, I think I kind of did this in that class, but whenever I've had TAs, I always make sure when I introduce them that I try to do it in a way that sort of like communicates my like that they you know sort of trying to use some of the fact that the students inherently. Treat, will treat me as an authority to say this person's an authority too. Mm -hmm. This per, you know, I try to sort of say like this person's here because they have all this experience and knowledge and, and expertise and everything. Because um, yeah, otherwise, like it just and that kind of shit really pisses me off. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. I think that it, there are definitely like mean differences between I think age and gender and things like that. Like your demographics will affect like what you what you can get away with like being like with your students but yeah. i think yeah it's still for me like i think i just have an off-putting personality so i don't have to <laughs> or standoffish rather that's what i meant um so i don't know i think to, you had it right <laughs> no yeah i think that like i've never had the problem of like students crying in my office or things like that because yeah i think i think i come across as standoffish even yeah. when i was a 25 year old person yeah. without a phd trying to right. teach right. class yeah no yeah i think I that, say, that sort of playing against type yeah, right. Yeah, right. It, every, everybody kind of has to, like, you have to figure out what impression students are going to draw. And then if you don't want them to draw that, you have to sort of, like, counteract it in some way. Yeah. I will say that I think people talk about the disadvantages of being a young female professor a lot, um, about how you have to sort of, like, deal with these more, like, maybe people questioning your authority or people um, coming to you more with personal problems or thinking you're going to be more sympathetic or whatever. Um, and I don't want to, like... Uh, I guess didn't like deny other people's experience or or question that. But for me, being like a young female professor was like, especially when I was really close to undergraduate's age, was great. Like I I felt like for the most part, with some like you know exceptions, like students who are assholes or whatever, um, I thought people gave me a lot of respect, like way more than maybe it was warranted at that point. <laughs> um, and but then it was really also really easy to relate to students, and so I, I felt like I had a really nice but that's relationship also your with them. Personality too, right? Like. <laughs> <laughs> 
Like you're still good. I think you're still going to be good at relating to students even when you're 50. And some of us were probably never that good at it. Well, yeah. I no, so. I mean, I think with, without denying the like the structural difference, I think like if students like the if there's a part of that where students treat you as someone that they can approach and view as sympathetic, I think like there are ways to take those parts of it. It sounds like that's kind of what you were able to do, Alexa, and sort of turn that into a way to connect to the students. Yeah. And again, not to not to dismiss the the larger context right. of, mm-hmm. of all the other things that go along with that. But, you know, it, it sounds like you figured out a way to like use that to connect with your students. Yeah, like I felt I felt like I had several advantages because of my like demographic category, but yeah. Um, and you can have yeah. both advantages and disadvantages. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, well that's that's fun. I, I uh um yeah, you only get to do things for the first time once, I guess. That <laughs> I remember, yeah, that you know, first time teaching was kind of like exhilarating and terrifying <gasps> at the same time, Man, wasn't it? So terrifying. Yeah, it's hard. Yeah. It's yeah. really, really hard. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, cool. Let's, uh, why don't we, uh, move on to our letter? Cause, uh, we got another good one this week. Alexa, do you want to read our letter? Yeah, this is a great letter. So I tried to cut this letter down a little bit. Um, but I really liked the letter, so I had trouble cutting very much. Um, so dear the black goat, I'm a PhD student in social psychology and recently I've been struggling a lot specifically with severe and sometimes paralyzing anxiety brought on by many things in grad school and my personal life. As someone close to psychology, although not clinical, I know that I would benefit from some sort of mental health counseling and looked into service offered to students by my university. My dilemma is this. Our affordable option for mental health is the counseling center, but some people I know from the clinical program in my department work at the counseling center, and I'm embarrassed that I would see them while seeking help. I know I wouldn't be placed with one of them for therapy, but I still worry they would find out that I'm going there. I know rationally that none of them would judge me for seeking help. I also don't want to be a part of the problem of the stigma around seeking help for mental health. I have sought counseling before, and I'm not embarrassed to talk about the fact that I've been through therapy for a depressive episode. But for me, there seems to be a conflict of keeping my personal life private around people I work with on a daily basis. More broadly, if you are comfortable sharing, did any of you struggle with these issues in graduate school, and how did it play out? I think many psychology graduate students would benefit from an open conversation about the barriers we face to seeking help, even as we advocate for others to seek help. For example, there can be a culture of normalizing and even glorifying anxiety in graduate school. I also sometimes think there is an attitude among grad students that getting help for mental health issues is something we can do later, when we have more time or money, when the best thing for us would be to do it now. Sincerely, stressed out Susie, a.k.a. SOS. Um... So yeah, I mean, I I really like that letter. I like that the um, this person addresses like the sort of quandary that graduate students I think can often be in when they know a lot of the people who work at the counseling center, um, but still want to seek counseling themselves. And I've I've heard similar concerns from people who are um, friends of mine who are graduate students even in other departments. Like the the idea of seeing like other graduate students who are in psychology. Um, for counseling, it feels strange to them. Um, and then also this like idea that you in graduate school, that's like not the time to go to therapy. Like you need to wait until you have more money or more time. Um, but you know, graduate school is, is tough. (laughs) It's a good time to get therapy. (laughs) Um, so yeah, I don't know. Uh, so I, I have, uh, these aren't, totally going to get us there but I, I have two sort of stories along similar lines one one is 
when I was an undergrad, the, this was actually the first time I ever saw any kind of a counselor for anything. I was an undergrad, and I was, I'd had a really bad breakup, and I was sort of having trouble sort of coping with it afterwards. And so I went to see somebody at the counseling center, and as we were coming out of my first appointment, uh, step into the hallway, and I look down the hall, and I see the back of my ex's head uh, walking out of another office. Yeah. And I turn to my therapist, and I go, that's her. And he's like, come back into my office. And so he like pulls me back into the office. And he's like, what did she look like? And I described her. And so he goes out into the hallway, and a few minutes later, he's like, she's gone. Um, and so, you know, so running into people, you know, and then wow. the, the other, the other experience was, was more recently, I was looking for a, a therapist here in Eugene and I thought, um, you know, all the, all the research says that like proper, good cognitive behavioral therapy is, is the way to go. Um, I want to try that. And so I went to the ABCT website where they have all the like people who are part of whatever it stands for, the American Behavioral and Cognitive Therapy or whatever the association is. Um, and, the, and it's a good place if you want like real CBT. Um, and I go to their website and I pull up all the, the ABCT, you know, certified people in Eugene, Oregon, and they're all my colleagues. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, well, fuck this. And so, you know, I ended up finding somebody else uh, um, uh, in town who wasn't, you know, on that list, but, you know, who was able to be helpful. But, you know, so so this this dilemma won't, won't you know, uh, won't necessarily go away, especially if you end up in a, in a small to medium-sized town. Mm -hmm. um, I think, uh, yeah. yeah. And the broader question of, like, how private of a fact to keep it that you're in therapy and things like that like so mm -hmm. yeah i'm in therapy and like sometimes i'll be like talking to somebody work related about like when to schedule a meeting and I was, i'm like oh i can't on wednesday at two i have another meeting and then i mm -hmm. feel like a fraud <laughs> and i'm like why don't i just say what it is and then i'm like it's it's kind of an interesting line in my mind like who i say therapy to and who i say meeting to mm -hmm. and like it's it tells me something about like how comfortable I feel with people which one I I say and I don't always know it until I'm in the situation and have to make a decision about what mm -hmm. to say yeah. but when when I was in grad school I was in the same situation as this grad student in, in some ways um and I had to decide whether to go to the counseling center and and bump into the clinical grad students as a social personality grad student and I went and I did bump into them and you know I think it's hard because each person's experience is different so like for me it was a little bit like that was a little bit of a deterrent. It, it was a factor in like, okay, it's, gonna, it's something I'm going to have to suck up and and face the fact that my peers in the clinical psych program are going to know that I'm going to the counseling center. Um, but I think, yeah, that like how how negative of an experience that is depends on so many other things, and it could I could imagine that it being it being such a big downside that it's not worth it. But that's really a shame. That's really sad if that's the situation. Yeah, I mean, I guess I would, so one thing is, you know, I, so this is, I guess, a third story now, but my, you know, I'm, I'm good friends with someone who runs a, a large marital and family therapy practice in town, and my wife and I went to see a counselor there, and, you know, our friend knew, you know, I didn't mind him knowing that we were, we were you know, going to his practice and we have other close friends who are therapists there. And, you know, we, we weren't worried going in, but, you know, he described to us, you know, all the steps that they take to ensure our confidentiality. He's not in the room. Mm -hmm. 
you know, I mean, first of all, they don't really talk about clients that much mm-hmm. with each other. And, you know, if if there's sort of specific context when they do, um, you know, people who know us aren't going to be in the room and whatever, blah, blah, blah. But also, like, yeah, they're, they're just, they're really good. And this is, I think this is a thing that, you know, especially in a small community, whether it's a small town or a university, actually, Eugene's not that small of a town, but uh, it just happens. that It's like, oh, Mark runs this practice. We think he's really good. Mm-hmm. We should, you know, go to him. Um, uh, but I think places that do counseling are sort of used to dealing with these issues. And so one thing very practical, I'd say, to the person who wrote the letter is to contact the counseling center Mm -hmm. um, and ask to speak to, like, someone in a managerial role, you know, the clinical director or whoever, and just state the concerns Mm -hmm. because they may have... They, they may have dealt with this yeah. plenty of times before, and they may have a protocol. They may be able to have a counselor meet with you outside of the center, or right. they may be able to schedule you during certain hours when the people that know you aren't going to be there. They they probably uh, would be able to to deal with this. I think I think counseling centers deal with stuff like this all the time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, another thing that I thought was. Um, a really interesting point about this letter was the point about um, glorifying anxiety yeah. in graduate school. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, I think that's a huge thing. Like, I think that that's almost like a like a competition to see who can. Um, I, I mean, the more indirect way for it to be a competition is for people to talk about, like, how much they work and how terrible their work life balance is. And, um, you know, like, talk about how little sleep they're getting and because, you know, they're devoting all of their time to to schoolwork. And I think. That's yeah, a really accurate characterization of graduate school and a really unhealthy um, dynamic that develops in grad school. And I don't know if, um, yeah, I don't. I'm curious about ways that um, faculty might be able to sort of like change that culture or make that, um, yeah, make the glorification of anxiety like less prominent, but. Yeah. Yeah, I don't. I mean, I think so. I think faculty can. I, I, I'm a little pessimistic about whether across the board they will. I, I think some will. Um, I mean, I, I try to talk to my students about in, in my lab about work life balance and, and sometimes and that kind of thing. Um, I, I don't know how unusual I am. I think I might be a little bit unusual. I certainly think there are opportunities to talk about that. Um, I, mean, I think I've told this story before. My when I was hired, my department had uh, told me, you know, that uh, like overworking yourself. She described it as an occupational hazard, and she said, like, you have you have to decide where to draw the line because you're always gonna feel like you could you could be doing more. And you know, and she kind of endorsed like find the line and draw it so that you know you keep your your health and your balance and your sanity. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think the, you know, in some ways, like, there's a, you know, there's a dynamic here, and I, I'm not suggesting that the person who wrote the letter is, like, responsible for this, but there's this dynamic where, like, they themselves don't want other students to know that they're having problems and having anxiety and needing help, and then at the same time, they're in this environment where, you know, they feel like anxiety is glorified and that kind of thing. And it's those things kind of again. I'm not blaming the person who wrote mm-hmm. this, but but those things kind of play into each other, right? So if you don't 
talk openly about the you know anxiety is something that actually sucks as mm-hmm. opposed to like right. this thing that you're kind of romanticizing or or you know sort of humble bragging about or whatever yeah um that it, it sort of creates that environment um i mean i i had i don't i don't want to you know say it was like the picture of health but the the fact that like i had people when i was in graduate school that i could be fairly real with made a big difference um uh and so have it you know there may be a way to sort of have a peer culture among graduate students. Um, but if you don't, if that doesn't exist already, it takes a lot of courage to try to change that. Yeah. I think it's also important to say that grad school doesn't have to be that way. And especially right. like intense yeah. levels of anxiety. And my guess is it's not so much how much people work that is causing those intense levels of anxiety, but what they're working on and how they're working and who they're working with. Like, for me, one of one of the most like enlightening moments was when I, I started having migraines as an assistant professor, and I went to see a doctor about it, and the doctor's advice was literally, don't do anything you don't want to do. And I was like, okay, can you like write uh, yeah. a note to my boss <laughs> and like, stop writing examples? But it made me think about, okay, like what are the parts of my job that like really stress me out, and, and can I cut those down? And it doesn't mean mm-hmm. working less overall, but in many cases, I think it's a toxic particular like dynamic with a particular person i think in many cases that's the biggest source of stress or anxiety at jobs i think there's some evidence Mm -hmm. on that even but so like if there's a if there's a relationship you have at work that's causing you a ton of anxiety that's not normal and like Mm -hmm. i think a lot of people higher up do normalize that and do say well that's that's it like that's how well advisors are like that or whatever but Mm -hmm. i think a big part of of fighting against that glorifying of anxiety is to say, no, like people shouldn't make you feel that way. And your job shouldn't make you feel that way. And if Mm -hmm. there, if there, if it's specific things that you can isolate and try to either reduce or change or whatever you, that's you're worth it. Like that's Mm -hmm. important to do. Yeah. And I think like an extension of what you said Samin, about, um, it not being normal and graduate student or grad school doesn't have to be that way. Um, I think, because yeah because like anxiety and being like a workaholic is so glorified i think people sometimes feel guilty if they don't feel like that if they feel like things are pretty balanced or if they aren't feeling like anxious or overworked Mm -hmm. um and you should not feel guilty if you feel that way yeah it makes me think like on a much much smaller scale but like people who take on editing jobs because they feel like they should and my reaction is always like no like I don't know. I, I love editing. So like, I'm happy to do it, but I don't think everybody should do it. If you hate it, Mm -hmm. don't do it. And that goes for many parts of the job. I mean, obviously there's some we can't cut out, but many parts of our job, we can decide how big of a part of our job they are, especially once we're Mm -hmm. faculty. But even as grad students, I think there are ways that you can have some control over, you know, if there's something you really, really dread, maybe you can talk to your, your lab and talk about like maybe other people enjoy that part and you would do something else instead or. Yeah. Yeah, I guess, I mean, part of, I, I don't know, this is maybe kind of part of this, but the, the last line of the letter kind of struck me too, which is the, you know, um, viewing, getting help or changing things as something you can do later when you mm-hmm. have more time. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, I I, um, I was... Uh, love the there's <laughs> this is gonna be a terrible comparison but <laughs> in the in the movie Office Space there's this scene where um, the the main character is at his therapist's office but it's like this intervention with all his, all the people and his like partner and everything else and he's saying you know 
Uh, um, I I realized that like every day I get up and it's a worse day than the last, and it occurred to me that that means that every day of my life is the worst day of my life. <laughs> um, and I I've thought about that with uh, um, how many like demands there are on my career, and and uh, you know it would be very easy to fall into like every day of my life is the most stressed day of my life, or every stage of my career is the most stressed mm-hmm. day, stage of my career. And I think that that's not actually true because you get better at coping and you get better at managing and you get more status and you mm-hmm. have people you know it just it changes but there there is some sense in which i think you could easily fall into that trap of saying i'll deal with it later mm-hmm. and later just if if you haven't dealt with it then then the things that you're planning to deal with later are just going to pile up mm-hmm. um and so i i do really endorse like do something mm-hmm. um see a therapist like take Take that leap, and and I I suspect if the clinical graduate students in this person's program are any good, one they're they are going to keep it private, but two they're gonna. I mean, most clinical most people that go into clinical graduate school have a lot of sympathy for the idea that you know clinical work is important, that everybody needs it, that it's mm-hmm. it's you know um, not a stigmatizing thing. And so there, there may be some sort of like monsters under the bed kind of feeling going on here. But I would say do that if if that's something that you want to do. Find a way to do it. Um, and also find a way to find your work-life balance now. Don't don't say like, you know, I'll, you know, I'll find a partner later or I'll make friends later or I'll start a family later or, you know, whatever. Um, and I will say, you know, if it's important to you, it's important now. Work, work balance, like within work, like balancing the things yeah. you hate versus like. So for me, like one thing I just decided I was not going to do and I've never done is apply for an NIH grant. Like that just sounds like pure hell to me. I am never <laughs> applying for an NIH grant. And that just felt like such a relief when I was like, yeah, no, like anybody, anytime somebody started talking to me like as a mentor about maybe I should apply for an NIH grant, I'm like, no, let's talk about like other options. That's just not on the table for me. I don't know if that's mm-hmm. rational, but it felt good. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> cool. Well, I, I hope we've uh, I hope we've helped stressed out Susie SOS. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, this was another cool letter. We really like it when the letters. Uh, I mean, we've, we've got we get cool letters. Uh, we try to get to you know as as many as we can. Um, and so, if you're listening and you have a letter for us, we we love getting letters. We you know we try to to respond obviously we you know we usually do one every episode but um and we like when they're sort of specific dilemmas rather than like what do you think about this and this was a cool one uh if you want to email us uh um letters at theblackgoatpodcast.com is how you can reach us by email for whether it's a letter you want us to to respond to on an episode or if you just want to get in touch with us in any other way that's the the way to reach us over email um and uh yeah it's it's always really cool to just have interactions with people who are listening i'm i'm continually surprised uh, when i find out people have uh uh listened to to the podcast my my 7 year old son listens to the podcast which amazes me um mostly because he thinks it's hilarious to hear me swear um but uh yeah thank you so much to all the the people who listen um, who send us letters, people who, uh, you know, interact with us on Twitter, on Facebook and other places. Um, and if you want to support us, uh, subscribing, rating us on iTunes is a great way to support the Black Goat. 
um, tell friends uh, or just listen, um, and that's awesome. Um, and if if you want to reach us, we're on the web at theblackgoatpodcast.com. Um, we're on Twitter at blackgoatpod. We're on Facebook, too. And those are all great ways to reach us. Cool. So uh, I think for our main topic, uh, we wanted to talk about idols, idols and role models. Um, although uh, there, <laughs> there's this cool biblical origin phrase all your mm-hmm. idols have uh, the, this is not the phrase the, but the idea of clay feet of clay right uh, um i had to look that up yeah, that, me too. That, <laughs> it's nebuchadnezzar which is like the best one of the best biblical names ever um mm-hmm. uh in a dream dreamt of a statue of a king uh who had feet of clay um and this this idea that uh um you know uh role models idols can can sometimes turn out to have flaws sometimes fatal flaws um, something we wanted to, to talk about uh, today. I don't know. Do you guys have, do you feel like you now or in the past have had idols, people you kind of sort of, yeah, like like look up to in, in that sense in psychology? I definitely did in the past, yeah. like in terms of people I didn't know that I looked up to. I think I'm trying really hard to stop doing that, though. Mm-hmm. I mean, not look up to might not be a strong enough word but like uh, yeah something stronger than look up to i'm fine with looking up to people i don't know but like this idolizing or putting them on a pedestal or that kind of thing i i just keep getting disappointed so i'm trying to (laughs) trying to stop do you think it's bad to do that i mean i think it selects for exactly the wrong people because if you're if we're talking oh, about people yeah. you don't know, right? Like the people that you don't know that you're gonna have heard of are the people who are self promoting or who are like I don't know, right? It's like correlated them coming across your like stream of consciousness and, and making an impression on you yeah. is probably correlated with characteristics that the more I'm in the field, the more I realize like those should be red flags. Like somebody who's super successful and has no imposter syndrome, has no like no guys like stop it don't put me on a pedestal like that's a really really bad sign but those are the people Mm -hmm. who when we don't know much like that's who we're gonna idolize right like yeah but i think i mean i i think i I don't know how how it's you know i I don't know how to generalize but i I think a lot of times it starts with somebody's work right so it, it starts you know i feel like when people tell me that there's there's someone they they really look up to a lot of times it's you know, they they read about this person's work maybe in a in a class as an undergraduate. They they learned about something and they thought, wow, and that it it like it it really connected with them that this this is really cool work. This is what made me want to go into this field. But usually that's um, combined and, with somebody your teacher presenting it as like amazing work, it's gonna change your life and this may, so maybe, and so. maybe, yeah. Not necessarily, but, but I think in many cases the reason you read their work, it was presented in the context of like you should be blown away by this. Right. But I, I, I think the I think a lot of times it's it's inspiration, right? It's what it's what brought mm-hmm. people into the field, and so I think that's that's where it, where it starts. Mm-hmm. And so I'm not I'm not saying this is I'm, I'm just I think for context, yeah. like why do even no, people right. even have idols in the first place, um, or or these kind of role models? I think there's a lot of different ways. You know, sometimes it's people that you've met um, uh, that you know were were sort of an early role model, and sometimes it's people. Um, 
uh, that you just read about their work and you thought this person's doing this thing that, you know, whether it's, you know, they're working on an issue that I feel really passionately about or they're doing this work that blew my mind yeah. or something like that. And so, so I think that's a lot. Of, and, and it, especially, you know, people I think are, are sort of encountering this when they're undergraduates, when they're often, you know, not everybody is an undergraduate, but often at this age when they themselves are developing an identity, you know, kind no, of like right. late adolescence, early adulthood. Um, and so I think it's a really like right. common thing to, to go into it and to say, like, I'm trying to figure out who I am here's this person that did this really cool thing yeah. that like, you know, and I want, I want to be like that yeah. or I want to, I aspire to do something like that. Yeah. Um, You're right. Yeah. And in fact, my story is exactly that. Like my first semester in grad school, I read a paper from European Journal of Personality, 1994, Wim Hofstede, who should own the definition of personality. And I practically memorized that paper. <laughs> I think like my email signature was something like, it is reality that owns a definition of personality, not any single operationalization. Like I was so <laughs> ridiculously enamored with that paper and with Hofstede. Yeah, so that does serve a really, really important function in, in our yeah. development. You're right. I'm, I'm, I'm missing that and side of it. I think there are also, I mean, the having imposter syndrome means you're more likely to have idols, right? Um, so if we if we want, we think that it's necessary for people to have imposter syndrome, syndrome or it's like unhealthy for somebody to have no imposter syndrome. Like those are the people who are going to have no idols, I don't right? Know. I feel like those are two, it's like the attachment, the model of self versus model of other. Like I think you can have a model of self where you realize that like you're far from perfect and you don't earn or deserve everything you get and so on, but also yeah. a model of other that way. Like that's, I mean, that's what I'm like trying to train myself to remember is that like, I don't deserve everything I get, but the people who have a lot, you know, other people who have a lot also didn't earn everything, you know, and like not fall mm -hmm. into the trap of assuming that just because somebody has an amazing title or an amazing record or people talk about them as if they're gods doesn't mean that they actually earned yeah. all that. Mm -hmm. Well, and I, yeah, I, think, right. I mean, sometimes we sometimes we encounter people like because we're encountering the work, we just don't know anything about them. Right. And so so the sort of like whether they you know, and, and sometimes they turn out to be, you know, humble, you know, sort of uh, um, kind of thoughtful people. And sometimes they turn out to be, you know, showboats or whatever. Um, I mean, I, you know, I think about like. This wasn't like an idle level thing, but you know, my first year of graduate school, one of the in our professional development class, one of the things we were assigned to do was to pick somebody uh, um, who was established in kind of the area where we wanted to do work, and we had to do an interview with them. Um, we had to like call them up. This was like pre cell phones, and you know, we had to like pick up the telephone and call somebody. Um, and I had met Aka Telligan uh, when I was interviewing for graduate school, and he had just struck me as like a really, and I, I had read some of his work, and he had just struck me as a really interesting person. And so I, I had this phone conversation with him, and he's an amazingly humble person, um, and also just like incredibly high in openness. Like the, the thing that, that had sort of like, gotten me interested in in talking to him was when I was interviewing for graduate school the movie Clueless had just come out and like mm -hmm. over lunch it was like a big group of people and he, he was like if you were to take this idea of cluelessness and uh, um, make it into a personality trait like how would you measure it and what would it mean and what were the construct you know he was just like he had seen this movie with his kid and you know and and uh, um, 
or with you know he'd seen this movie with somebody and and anyway it, you know so i think and he turned out to be like a just a very and so i had this conversation in graduate school and he talked to me about the big five and kind of some of his concerns about sort of you know uh this like the things he liked about it but also you know sort of reservations and whatever and it was just a really sort of thoughtful conversation um and so I think, you know, people do sometimes turn out yeah. to be like that when we sort of encounter them in some yeah. some way. But then other times and even. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. I have this. I think this reaction to the idea of like abandoning idols. But I think what I don't like about that is like abandoning admiration for other people. Mm-hmm. So I think yeah. that like if you can maintain that where you like really admire a lot of things about other people and are capable yeah. of like identifying the things that other people are better at than you and looking up to them um then yeah. that sounds really nice to me and i think you can you can maintain that without sort of like seeing people as perfect and also without conflating um like sort of stereotypical signs of fame and status with right. like admirable qualities yeah i think i'm just being like a grumpy old woman where like i see new grad students the things that draw them to yeah. admire somebody initially are the wrong things but we all go through that or not everybody but many of us go through that and i think eventually you kind of refine your sensors and you're like okay mm-hmm. it shouldn't be the institution they're at they're at or the fact that they won an right. award or whatever it should be like actually looking at their work or, or meeting them and and finding out they're like a humble person or whatever mm-hmm. else but some like I, yeah i think that the problem is the things that initially draw our attention often are the opposite of what we should be looking mm-hmm. for yeah i mean i think the i think it's also you know the idea of an idol to me is like this is uh a person, and I think this is maybe part of this progression you're talking about, that that I think often early on, like, you know, as you're first sort of learning about the academic world, you're first learning about sort of the world in general, and you kind of identify people, and and idol sort of suggests, like, the whole person, everything yeah, about yeah, them. Yeah, yeah, right. And, and, and as you, you know, and I think some people sort of stick to that, but but some people do move past that where, you know, and this this is often, and I think over the last, you know, handful of years in psychology, there have been a lot of instances of this where, you know, the, the work that people did is uh, in some cases has turned out to be sort of problematic in some ways um, for a variety of reasons, you know, in different, in different instances. Um, but, you know, you sort of... You know, sometimes it's about the the work itself that drew you to them. Sometimes you just find out other things about them that oh, this person, you know, that I admired their work. It turns out that they're you know they're a really terrible human being, <laughs> or they're mm-hmm. you know they're they're like you know all their former graduate students hate them because they were abusive, or that uh, um, you know they're a notorious sexual harasser or something like that. And it's like, what do you? what do you do with that information? Or sometimes they just have kind of smaller flaws, but you, you sort of have to get past them. And so I think, you know, this, the, the idol thing is, is tough because you have to, if someone's going to be an idol, it's like everything about them. Right. And, and that's where you're, I think you start to set yourself up for, for disillusionment. Mm -hmm. Um, And so when you, when you start sort of picking out pieces of people and saying like, I admire this, Mm -hmm this accomplishment or I admire this theory this person developed or I admire the, you know, you know, in my case with Akatelligan, like I admire his sort of openness and thoughtfulness about, right. uh, um, uh, you know, about personality. 
Um, and, and I mean, I never got to know him well enough to sort of, you know, but, but, uh, um, yeah, I think sort of picking out pieces yeah. of people and then, and then that makes it more robust to failure, right? Mm, like yeah. you find out, you know, you've got mm-hmm. like uh, this constellation of people that you admire different things about them. And then, yeah. if, you know, if one of the stars falls from the constellation that, you know, the rest of it is still right. there. Yeah. I like, I like that point. I think you're right that it's the sort of all encompassing aspect that makes it sort of idolizing someone. And I think that's problematic in part for the reasons that Samin has been talking about. And that like, you're, if you only look up to people who seem perfect, you will pick the wrong people because they're going to be people who present themselves as perfect. Right. So present themselves as, you know, having no doubts or no uncertainties and like always, you know, being like confident in every situation and stuff, which I think sort of ties a little bit back to our chit chat topic when we were talking about, you know, um, pretending that you're not a first time teacher. Although I, I still don't think that that you necessarily should admit that, but, but yeah, if you're, if you're only selecting people who seem like they have no flaws and are perfect, you probably will select people who are, um, like overconfident or overly sure of themselves or, you know, sort of like unwilling to admit any mistakes, which, is not ideal. And then also, like you say, Sanjay, the, another consequence of, um, just, yeah, idolizing everything about someone is that then, um, as soon as they do one thing wrong, it's like that totally shatters your image of them. So, um, so yeah, if you can maintain the admiration for sort of individual qualities then it also leaves more room for you to, I think like admire people who are, um, your peers or even people who are more junior to you because you can mm-hmm. you can recognize that somebody more junior than you is way better at X than you are or something like that, which which I like. Yeah, like I also really, I feel a lot more confident in looking up to somebody once I have seen something I don't like about them and it's kind of the same yeah. in interpersonal relationships, right? You're like waiting for the other shoe to drop and then if the <laughs> other shoe drops and you're like, I can handle that shoe. <laughs> yeah. So like, I like the experience of like people who I really admire and so on. And then I read a paper of theirs and I'm like, okay, I totally disagree with their interpretation there. Or I think that that method mm-hmm. isn't very good or whatever. Then I'm like, but I can, I can deal with that. That's not so bad. And like, I, I feel more like my, my admiration is more robust if it's withstood some stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what are, I mean, are there things that are deal breakers and specifically if like you admire so so let's say we've we've sort of moved past idols and we're we're in the sort of constellation world and let's say there's something about someone that you really admire and then you find out something different that doesn't undermine that thing are there things so you know i'm thinking like an example um this is from a a, you know a different domain and this is not idolization but um uh you know when you find out like an an artist uh, has done terrible things in their personal life. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. so, you know, Woody Allen is one famous example of this. Um, there recently been, uh, Louis CK is a comedian. Uh, so this is an idolization cause I'm not a stand up comic. Right. But I've always loved Louis CK's work. And, but there have been, uh, um, I think growing stronger and stronger kind of rumors that he's a sexual harasser. Um, no, I'm so disappointed uh, by that. I know, I know. Um, uh, there's, uh, yeah, it's been kind of in the news recently because Tig Notara, who I also love as a comedian, um, has on her show has kind of done some stuff related to this and gave an interview recently. 
Um, and so it's like, I, I look back at that and I'm like, can I still, can I st- like, can I still admire his comedy yeah. if this turns out to be true and, and there's sort of growing evidence that it's, it's going to be true. You know, can, can you admire a Woody Allen movie knowing, knowing what he's done? Um, and so I think within the, the realm of academic psychology, it's like, you know, yeah, what are, you know, what, so obviously like if someone turns out to have committed fraud, then you question the work even that you like, even if that work wasn't, you know, undermined because you sort of assume like, oh, that's suspicious too. But what, yeah. what do you, are there other like deal breakers? Are there things where you just be like, fuck it, I, I'm not even going to like yeah. care about that anymore? For me, like the worst sin someone in that position can commit, and I think the most common one, and maybe this is like what my whole uh, thing that's bugging me today is, is that there are people who take advantage of that admiration mm-hmm. and that pedestal that people put them on. And that's true even on a smaller scale with advisors, right? I think a very common problem with advisors is that they take advantage of the fact that their grad students look up to them. And that to me is like the biggest sin. And it breaks my heart to see people go up to their idols or go up to people they admire, be treated kind of crappy by those people, like have those people lap it up and like whatever, let it go to their heads. And the more junior people don't see that dynamic or think that that's normal or think that, well, yeah, anybody that's successful is going to treat people that way. And to me, that's not excusable. And the fact that it's directly connected to the admiration and so on, it's like they're taking that admiration and they're turning it into something to their benefit and that harms others. And that mm-hmm. as to me is yeah. unforgivable. Like even if their work is really solid, whatever, when I see that side of somebody, I it's hard for me to get over. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that that pattern has, has a way of persisting because a lot of times those people are very different toward peers, mm-hmm. right? So someone, you know, uh, someone who kind of like, you know, takes advantage of people lower status than them or is abusive even towards people lower status than Mm -hmm. them is often sucking up to the people above them when they're rising up and and then when they get to the top they're nice to their friends yeah um yeah and so they they continue to sort of get recognition and all those other things it's not even necessarily that extreme like sure like people who take advantage i guess take advantage is the wrong phrase because i just mean people who if someone treats you like you're amazing who are like oh i must be amazing like even if they don't like explore anybody or abuse anybody but just act as if that's like a normal right like when, yeah, when people right. look up to you and treat you that way it's so easy to fall into the trap of like being like oh well then i'm the like one who's looked up to and that's normal and that's a, and i think Some... i think a, a better of someone who deserves to be admired would try to balance out that relationship a little bit more and try to be like okay no but you have some great things about you too and i like these you know i admire these things about you and so on try to level things a little bit i mean i know it's idealistic to think that it's always equal i know it's not always equal but to not just accept that huge gap in in status that people give you when they admire you right Is, is it like the thing that rubs you the wrong way i mean is it like the failure to like acknowledge the privilege that you have like theoretically people i think who are in positions of power in academia or whatever and have people looking up to them. Um, I think in the vast majority of cases, people in that position, the right emotion to feel is just a lot of like luck and gratitude, right? Like you're really, really fortunate to be in that position. You sure. Maybe like you worked hard, but probably not like way harder than other people have worked. Um, so you should feel really lucky and you should just be like sort of amazed that people are sort of like looking up to you and, And, but then like to have the opposite reaction, like 
um, oh, this is to be expected. Like somebody right. should um, yeah. look at me this way. It's like kind of gross. Yeah. Yeah. So what, I mean... But I think I am worse than most people at compartmentalizing. To go back to Sandra's original question of, like, what's a deal breaker? I think I have a lot of deal breakers. Like, I think... I mean, that's the biggest one. But, like, I think I'm also... I think it's good to try to do the constellation thing that Sandra describes. And when, when it's not something that big, when it's not a huge sin, to be able to compartmentalize a little bit and be like, okay, well, it's not somebody I would necessarily want to be friends with, but, like, they do good work or they, you know, mm-hmm. they're good in this role. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's... It, it has been an interesting time in psychology in the last like six, seven years, because I think findings are coming into question in a lot of cases. Um, and, and sometimes sort of practices that people have, have used to get those findings are then being implicated as well. And, you know, I mean, you know, sort of fraud and misconduct is kind of one end of the the spectrum. And I think it's in some ways, like it's, it's heartbreaking to find out that someone you idolized committed fraud but in some ways like you know at at least you can sort of get away from that and you can be like well okay i got suckered but like it's very clear that this person was Mm -hmm. was in the wrong right but you know i think there's um more ambiguous cases coming up and and you know where yeah where it's just like oh that the the work that led me to admire this person isn't as solid as I thought it was, which, which, you know, and some of that actually has probably always been happening. Mm-hmm. I think that, you know, theories come and theories go and, and, and all that, like, yeah, where, where does that, I mean, how, how do we, how do we deal with sort of young people who are coming into the field with, with sort of people who are, you know, undergraduates or graduate students and, and how do we get people kind of, to feel good about entering psychology in a time when the the things that may have brought them in may be sort of coming under question sometimes. Yeah, I mean, I think the reason I teach research methods instead of substantive things is because I think that's the way to get them hooked, is to say we have, <laughs> we're like developing the tools to try, like the questions are so important, right? They're, that's the easiest thing psychology mm-hmm. can sell, is we're studying the questions that so many people want to know the answers to. And I want people to come into psychology because they think those questions are worth studying scientifically and because they think that we're getting better at developing tools to do that and not necessarily because they think we have the answers already. Um, but I know that for many of us, including me, like some of the, the, the papers I read that made me think we had answers were what got me into it. So, yeah. But I think like seeing people attempt to answer it, hey, Bear. seeing people tackle these really difficult questions and come up with a preliminary like probably wrong answer can be inspiring even if you don't completely like even if you can be appropriately skeptical of the answer but say like look at this amazing thing that psychologists are trying to do they're trying to understand self-esteem or they're trying to understand leadership or love or whatever um Mm -hmm. and they're making these they're making this progress and they're not there yet but that's pretty amazing Mm mm-hmm so sort of admiring heroic questioners rather than heroic answerers in some ways. Yeah, something like I that. I mean, yeah. I think that's, you know, like the, yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, the there is this sort of romanticized vision of like the, you know, the, the scientist who kind of toils away at a problem for, you know, trying to crack it for a long time. And of course, we usually tell that, first of all, the story is never that clean. And second of all, we usually tell that story after they make the big discovery. And, and it's like, it was all worth it, whatever. Yeah. But 
there there is something kind of uh, also they want um, we should want them to have work-life balance and not be toiling yes. away all the time <laughs> yeah yeah but no i mean in the sense that like someone's worked on an important problem for a long time um i think there's something very admirable about that whether or not they've gotten to the right answer if they've really been sort of if, the, if they've made it their ambition to you know to work on some important social problem or to work on some important theoretical problem um yeah, that that's a that's a thing, and and you know, like with you know with talking about research methods, and you know, are they doing it in the right way? Um, I, but those yeah, those people don't necessarily make it into like the textbooks or make it into you know you know get get awards or things like that necessarily. Although maybe that's starting to change. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is a tension, though, because I do think you're right that that's what hooks people often is is a finding or a belief in a finding. And then you have to figure out how to, like, increase their skepticism without reducing, without increasing their disillusionment. And that's a tricky thing to navigate. Yeah. 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 Yep, it's tricky. <laughs> <laughs> it's tricky. Skepticism <laughs> it's, without disillusionment, that's the goal. Yeah. Yeah. But I think I think that that's uh you know, I I think that that's I mean, in some ways like pe- when I think of people now who I look up to and admire, not necessarily idolize, but it's it's often people who have, you know, Paul Meal is an example of someone I think a lot of people who are interested in sort of research methods in psychology who are interested in sort of you know, open science, you know, find things to admire about Paul Meal. Um, and Paul Meal actually, like, also discovered things. <laughs> but I think for me, at least, like, the the thing, you know, the the things that that I have have really sort of found admirable about him are, are his thinking about, and, you know, expressed in his writing, his thinking about the, you know, how to do science and, and the sort of the attitude mm-hmm. that he took toward you know, viewing it as a really hard problem and, and trying to understand it and, and more so than like, oh, here's this cool yeah. discovery or this cool kind yeah. of theory that he developed. Yeah, I think there are, yeah, there are people who um, write papers that are not necessarily documenting findings but have like a great idea or write a paper in a really persuasive or clever way that, you know, people can look up to as well. Although I don't want to abandon the, the idea that we should um, like think some findings are cool and that's like a good, good reason to get interested in psychology is because there are cool findings out there. Yeah, no, but it's, you know, it's, it's uh registered reports for idols, right? You <laughs> admire them for, independent for what the they did before they got yeah, the results. Right. Yeah. 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 Outcome yeah. independent admiration. Uh-huh. That, that might be, that might be the way to go. Um, cool. Cool. Well, uh, is there anything else? Have we, uh, we reached a good good end point for the episode. Yep. Mm-hmm. Awesome, cool. Well, uh, this this was fun as always. Um, 
Uh, thank you to everybody for listening. We are the Black Goat, Samin Vizier, Alexa Tullet, and myself, Sanjay Srivastava. I forgot to say your full names. I thought we were doing more casual introductions where we were going to each say our names. Uh, and so I said, yeah. I'm Sanjay Srivastava, mm-hmm. and then I'm here with Samin and Alexa. Then you guys never said your names. And I'm like, oh, now I just, speaking of, you know, arrogant <laughs> people, uh, <laughs> Alexa Tullet, Samin Vizier, Sanjay Srivastava. Uh, thank you all for listening, and uh, we'll see you next time.